You're about to join Niels Kostrup Larsen on a raw and honest journey into the world of systematic investing and learn about the most dependable and consistent yet often overlooked investment strategy. Welcome to the Systematic Investor Series. Welcome or welcome back to this week's edition of the Systematic Investor Series with Alan Don and I, Niels Kastrup-Larsen, where each week we take the pulse of the global market through the lens of a rules-based investor. Alan, wonderful to be back with you this week, a week that turned out a little bit different uh, than most people expected when it comes to credit ratings and Apple earnings. How are you doing? I'm good, yeah. It's uh, it's pretty miserable here in Dublin, actually. It's, uh, we've had the wettest July on record, and it's definitely... Uh, carried into August. So um, from a, a, a summer perspective, it's, it's it's a pretty stop start. But as you say, a very interesting week in markets and a big shift in sentiment, as you say, as we've gone gone through the week. Yeah, we'll dive into that in a second. Yeah, I, con- I concur with the uh, the wet sentiment for July, um, looking at the, the weather up here in, in northern part of Europe, where I am at the moment, it has also been the wettest July on on record, which is very interesting because that's obviously not what people have experienced in the southern part of Europe. Um, so maybe the northern part will be the new south, uh, so to speak. All right. Well, as we normally do before we dive into your sort of global macro picture, which we will in a second, I was just wondering, I mean, we've got a lot of good topics lined up, but just more generally speaking, is there anything other than maybe the global macro stuff we're going to talk about that kind of has caught your radar since we last spoke uh, a few weeks ago? Well, I mean, we'll touch on it a bit more, but but obviously from a, an equity market perspective, it was just interesting how, you know, after the run-up, um, we saw a, n- a number of strategists turn bullish. Uh, you know, about a week ago, I just saw Mike Wilson, who has been Morgan Stanley, he's generally been on the kind of the pessimistic side about earnings, but he seemed to throw the towel in a little bit in terms of the bearish case. And then, a strategist at Oppenheimer Asset Management came out with a target of 4,900 uh, for the S&P 500. So just as we hit that point of maximum bullishness, uh, that the market turned down and we had a negative week. So it's just interesting how the market does that to you every time, that uh, it brings you along and then encourages people to get more bullish. And then at just at that point, uh, we get a big change in sentiment. Um, but we'll talk about that. We will talk about that. It kind of reminds me of an interview I did uh, quite a while ago. Um, I've had this guest on a couple of times. It's a bit controversial. He's a financial astrologer. And so people, the comments I've kind of gotten is and either people think it's fantastic, it's the best things, you know, ever, or it's completely mumbo jumbo. They don't believe a, a word of it. But what's been very interesting, not that I follow his work very closely and I don't subscribe to it. Um, But I see some headlines from him, and I remember the conversations I've had with him. And he has, for a very long time, been incredibly bullish on equities, you know, throwing out numbers like 7,500 on the S&P at a time when it was down in like 2000. And so I agree with you. I think there is, I mean, we know this for sure that these so-called experts and strategists that come out with these forecasts, I mean, very often they change them right at the wrong time. Um, but I am curious about this particular guy who's been bullish for a number of years. 
whether actually we will have a big breakout to the upside and um, and things might take off. But let's talk about that uh, a little bit more because as we normally do when when you and I talk, we do talk about sort of big picture global macro before we jump into other topics. And of course, it was a week, as I mentioned earlier, where there's been a few interesting things. I mean, of course, yesterday uh, we had July's unemployment report uh, that came out a little bit softer maybe. Uh, it came out uh, at 187,000 new jobs uh, in the non, in non-farm payrolls. Um, expected was 200,000 as far as I recall. There was also a small downward revision in the prior months of about a 50K or so. Um, but then you had hourly earnings that remained pretty solid. Um, and I think the question that I see in the news is a little bit, you know, is the Fed going to change its narrative from whether to raise rates further or maybe it has to be how long do rates need to stay this high? If we just focus on that before jumping into the other big event of the week, do you have any thoughts on on, on that the market seemed to see it as a bit of a weak number, which, you know, obviously the dollar was a bit weaker in the immediate aftermath. And obviously bonds had a big uh, rebound yesterday. So it wasn't dramatically weaker. You obviously had the back back revision, but equally, as you say, the, the earnings number was 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 above expectations and unemployment was back down to three and a half percent. So I, I, I saw it as a bit of a nothing number, you know, not particularly um, bullish or bearish um, and certainly still consistent with the idea that the labor market is very tight, obviously. Three and a half percent unemployment rate and uh, earnings still growing pretty solidly. So, you know, if you were looking for a slowdown, it was probably a little bit of a hint there to give you some encouragement. But, uh, but yeah, I didn't think it was a, a, a really massively market moving number. No, another event which, of course, on the surface uh, seemed to be bigger, but net net probably didn't move the market that much in the last uh, couple of days, is of course what happened uh, earlier in the week. And that is when we heard from Fitch uh, that they weren't that impressed with what Janet Yellen and Jerome Powell are up to, and they downgraded the U.S. credit rating from double A, uh, sorry, to double A plus from triple A. Uh, how how do you see this uh, play out, so to speak? Yeah, I mean, I think most people were a bit skeptical, you know, and a bit bemused with the timing. Yeah, I, I mean, you can accept their case, and their case was largely around. I think it was more of a response to the, you know the debate around the debt ceiling and all of that and governance, as they say, as opposed to, you know, the trajectory for for for, for debt to GDP levels uh, in the US. Obviously, um, we've had, you know, high inflation in the US. So, so that's kind of helped keep uh, the, the, the debt to GDP level kind of in check. So it was kind of, yeah, it's kind of hard to understand what's prompted us now. Um, I think what they're saying, you know, you couldn't say, you couldn't disagree with anything they're saying. But um, yeah, it's a bit... Uh, bit surprising, the timing. I guess from a market perspective, obviously we did see a, a reaction, but it seemed to be more of a, you know, a wake-up call to markets that there are risks out there. And as we say, sentiment had got very bullish, so it just seemed to be the trigger for people to presumably probably, to you know, take back some risk. You know, I, in itself, obviously, I, I wouldn't have seen it as being hugely significant. We did obviously have a, a downgrade, you know, back in 2011. And you did see something similar in terms of a knee-jerk sell-off in equities, but eventually things uh, recovered. So, yeah, I mean, more of it, it seemed to be more of a catalyst um, for 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 kind of some profit taking. And um, but fundamentally, yeah, I think people are kind of questioning where is this coming from now. Yeah, no, I did notice also. I think Janet Yellen came out and said she was, you know, puzzled, you know, in light of the economic strength that you see in the U.S. 
I mean, on the other hand, you could, of course, argue, you mentioned it yourself, that we have this debt-to-GDP ratio, uh, which is kind of a measure of solvency, I guess. Um, and we know that that has ballooned since the 2008 financial crisis, um, and it soared even well above 100% uh, during the pandemic. And according to St. Louis Fed, uh, Federal Reserve, the debt-to-GDP ratio currently stands at about 120%. And to put that in perspective, that ratio was somewhere between 35% and 65% prior to 2008. So maybe, I mean, again, timing, you could argue, but, you know, there is a little bit of... No, I mean, there is a concern there. I mean, uh, the the economists look at two numbers on this. um, I think 20% of that debt is held by government agencies. So there's another number that if you adjust for that, it's about 100%. Now, you know, it's 100%, it's... It's a big enough number. Um, it hasn't got any. It kind of hasn't got worse. I would have said in the last year, but um, you know, I think the big thing is what's coming in the next decade, and you know, in in terms of Medicare, Medicaid, all of that spending, and as the demographics change, so so certainly it's a, it is a potential uh, risk down the road, and and the question is then, um, well, how will that be financed, or will you know, basically, will this trigger rising yields? But, you know, it's kind of been a bit of a surprise that we haven't had higher 10-year yields, um, you know, obviously extremely inverted uh, curve. So it did seem like um, that, that the move was going to be the trigger for a sustained move up. But but then again, yesterday, a rebound in bonds just when it looked like we were starting to see a, a breakout. So, I mean, I, I don't think anybody could be too surprised if if bonds went up to 5% or so, you'd still, you'd still have an inverted yield curve. Yeah, yeah, no, uh, very true, very true. Yeah, and you did notice, uh, you did note that that of course we have seen this about twelve years ago as well, August, uh, also in August uh, for that. Uh, you know, interestingly enough, and then you and I sort of change, exchanged emails because I was asking you, well, how did uh, did this had any impact on performance? You looked it up. You said, well, yeah, there was a little bit of a negative month, et cetera, et cetera, but. At least for the industry, because uh, when I look at, at at the numbers that we produce at the firm I work for, it, it wasn't as as bad as as what you suggested. But you did say it's interesting because uh, the, the the trend follows in general certainly had uh, a challenging period uh, starting around two thousand eleven, uh, going into twenty fourteen. I think in particular, I think from memory, twenty twelve was 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 challenging. I think for everyone. 13 was dif- different for, you know, manager to manager, so to speak. Um, but I, I don't know if that had anything to do with the downgrade. I, I have no idea. No, I mean, it was just the first in, 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 a, in a number of events that kind of generated relatively choppy markets. So we I, like we had a downgrade in August of 2011. Um, equities fell, but, but then kind of, and then as you got into kind of the third quarter of 2011, you had um, greater strains coming from the European debt crisis and, and then a, a recovery in equities in October of that year. So that would have been a reversal. And then, as you say, when we get into 20, sorry, 2012, you, you know, the, the expression um, risk on, risk off, we don't hear of it so much these days. But that was, you know, that was the real buzzword in that period because you literally used to have different uh, European meetings every month where one, you know, where the debt crisis was solved and it wasn't and markets kind of gyrated uh, based on that. And, and market correlations were, were quite high. I remember at the time, that was a, a challenge for, for trend followers as well. So you weren't seeing a lot of kind of unique themes and trends influencing the market. It all seemed to be this one risk on, risk off factor, which kind of went through 2012. And then obviously 2013, you had a taper tantrum. And as you say, you know, it was kind of 2014 when we started to see 
sustained trends coming through. Obviously, the dollar had a big move. Bonds rallied, big sell-off in crude oil. So, yeah, it was, uh, you know, I don't think you could, you couldn't pin it on, on the debt downgrade, but it was the kind of one of the first events in that kind of two to three year period of choppy choppiness in the markets. Yeah, I mean, I think you make a great point about the correlation back then. Um, I was looking at the return attributions for July. Obviously, I can only look at one firm for that number, but I did notice that actually it looks very, uh, it looks like there's a lot of divergence going on. I mean, even within the same sector, you would have some markets doing pretty well in July and other markets just offsetting that. Uh, so there seems to be a lot of, of different things going on. But you know what, Alan? This wasn't necessarily, and, and this might surprise some people, I don't know if the two things we've talked about so far, unemployment numbers and the downgrade, was the biggest news this week. And I don't know if you um, have uh, followed this particular part, but of course, the US Treasury Department announced that third quarter borrowing plan this week, uh, which one of the money center bank described as a treasury tsunami they announced the, the numbers. And so approximately 254 billion of treasury coupon notes were issued and bonds were issued in June. Uh, they said that this number will rise to 270 billion in, in August. It'll further rise to 281 billion in October. And based on the October numbers, we're going to be running at an annualized number of 3.37 trillion if the deficit doesn't rise any further. They also announced that they're going to do some kind of weird, I wouldn't, maybe it's kind of a QE, but they're going to buy up older issues because bond traders have complained that the spread, the bid offer spread on some of the old issues um, are way too wide in the bid offer spread. So they're going to come in and just solve that problem for them, which again is another artificial impact uh, on on the markets, of course, not letting them uh, just function as, as they should. But these are big numbers. And so you would think that bonds, knowing that those kind of amounts of new issuance are coming, um, that actually as, as, as what we saw initial sort of reaction on, on Thursday, Wednesday, Thursday, that bonds were selling off. I mean, maybe rates for bonds should go higher for longer now because of all that new debt coming out. Yeah, no, I think um, it's a fair point. Um, I mean, this this is kind of the the flip side of the, you know, the um, debt ceiling agreement. It, you know, obviously that was a risk in markets, but we got th- that resolved. But we knew that once that was resolved, um, the what's called the TGA, the Treasury General Account, had to be kind of rebuilt because they had run down their cash basically at the Fed. Um, so, so we knew that there was a lot of issuance coming. Um, I mean, I haven't looked at it in, in detail. Uh, a big question was, you know, was it going to be at the long end or the short end? Because they have been issuing more debt uh, at the short end, um, you know. So, um, but it makes sense. Obviously, ten-year yields at four, four and a quarter percent. Um, T bills five and a half percent. Why, why wouldn't you issue more at the, at the long end? But, but certainly, um, it, you know, again, it's part of the part of the mix of factors which you would say should support uh, higher higher yields um but and it did seem to uh, impact sentiment earlier in the week but as i say we, we've had a bit of a bounce yesterday so i think it's certainly something uh to monitor and it'll be interesting to see um you know it could be something that becomes more market moving over time you know what's the appetite as they issue that debt because um you know it, it this ties into the view around you know is the dollars 
reserve status under threat? Because if that was, and, you know, if international reserve managers were becoming less, you know, willing to hold dollars, you would start to see that in their in their um, holdings of treasuries as well, which obviously we haven't seen to date. Um, so I think that is, it's 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 potentially a theme to, to watch going forward, you know, and, and obviously a key factor in, in terms of driving bond yields. You mentioned the word, it would make sense if they would issue more long bonds at this stage. But having said that, I mean, wouldn't it have made even more sense if they would have issued 50 or 100 year yep, bonds like three yeah. years ago? <laughs> yeah. I mean, instead of one year or two year bonds, it's completely crazy. Now, another thing that's quite fun, I wouldn't say, I don't know if it's funny, but interesting, let's put it that way, is this what came out this week also? Maybe in support of, of of bond yields, but of course Buffett came out saying, "Well, I'm buying five billion dollars worth of treasury bonds today, and I might buy another five later this week." And then Bill Ackman comes out and saying, "Well, I'm shorting U.S. fixed income, and I'm doing it in size." So again, it's not just the quote unquote experts or strategists that are are uh, divided on this uh, topic. Uh, even well-known hedge fund managers seems to have differing opinions. It would seem. Yeah, I mean, and I think it's a matter of time frame as well. You know, obviously, you you can make a case for that that there's more upside on on, on bond yields, but equally, you know, and we'll talk a bit uh, later on about asset allocation and how that fits in. But you know, bonds are investable again. I guess yeah, where when they were at zero percent, you know, you had a big downside risk. Now you can, yeah, you can. Well, you can pick up five and a half percent, you know, for three month or one year or whatever it is now. So 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 certainly. There is a case for for kind of a if if that's your risk kind of tolerance if you want, um if you want that type of investment. Well, you talked about uh, famous hedge fund managers having different opinions. Uh, Ray Dalio came out with a piece. I know we're going to talk a little bit about that. I haven't read it in detail myself, um, but I know you have. So um, tell us a little bit more. Yeah, well, his piece was. Um, I mean, it was he kind of left open a lot of questions in his piece, but it was a lot of it was around. You know why has the economy stayed strong? Um, you know, and, and this is something we've been talking about. You know, in terms of obviously we had a big fiscal transfers. You know, the government issued debt and and gave out checks during the COVID during COVID, uh, and and that was and and we're still living through that in terms of excess savings and 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 household balance sheets been in good shape. So it's kind of government um, <clears throat> federal balance sheets been in poor shape, but. Um, Household balance sheet's been in, in good shape was a key part of it. One of the interesting parts of his piece that I thought uh, was he touched on the fact that there's a, a debate underway uh, among some of the central banks now about how they're going to deal with the losses from bonds. So this is a discussion for, for the Bundesbank at the moment. Um, and there was, <clears throat> I think there was a leak uh, from the, the federal debt agency in, in, in Germany around whether they should go and recapitalize the Bundesbank in light of uh, the kind of the losses on the bonds. Now, they're not insolvent or they don't have negative equity. They have big holdings of gold and foreign reserves. But, you know, it is, but they are going to have a negative cash flow. Obviously, what they're earning on their bonds is a lot less than what they're now paying uh, on, on, on deposits. So it's kind of a negative cash flow. So we're going to see this around the world. There is this general question, does it matter? You know, we talked to, it came up when we spoke to, to, to Bill White uh, last year and, you know, in theory, it doesn't. You know, you know, a central bank can just issue more, 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 more cash, or you know, the government can issue debt and and fund the central bank. So, it's kind of the thing. It doesn't matter until it does, until it becomes a concern for investors, and it's it's kind of again a confidence thing. So, I think it's something a theme we'll hear more about as these losses accrue, 
uh, and that negative cash position uh, uh, c- continues. Again, it's not something that that in in itself is is uh, going to be uh, significant. But if 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 these kind of themes arise at a time of more debt issuance and maybe a general concern about kind of the uh, trajectory of debt and deficits, it could be part of a of a whole kind of picture that that causes concerns. So I think it's something that an an interesting topic to keep an eye on. I agree. Uh, in fact, speaking of confidence, interestingly enough, we have a, a super interesting uh, guest rejoining us in a few weeks, uh, Peter Atwater, who just published a book on confidence, uh, his second book, actually. And I remember from our first conversation, and this is kind of my underlying worry, if I have one, um, well, maybe I have many, actually, but one of them is this thing about confidence, because I don't think we talk enough about it, but I don't think, uh, and I don't think people realize how important it is, especially in financial markets. And I guess my underlying fear is that, you know, at some point, and as you rightly say, it, it's either there or it's not. I mean, maybe we get, we see a shift in confidence in some of these institutions who have steered us through many different crises, not necessarily in the most constructive way and then at some point investors will wake up and say well hang on we just don't want to do this one more time and and this will show up in 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 market prices um anyways that's a little bit of a a a digression okay so um what else was in dalio's piece you talked about japanification i mean that's another theme that that's been in the market in the last few weeks um and China, I guess. And China, well. I mean, no, exactly. Yeah, and Japan, yeah. Japanification in in relation to China, you know, and this has been something that, that that I guess people have been worried about. I mean, people were worried about Japanification with respect to Europe for for a while because of uh, the demographic picture is, <clears throat> is is similar. But I think with respect to China, uh, it has come back on the radar in the last few weeks. And I suppose what one thing that people are talking about is is kind of a possible balance sheet recession in in China. Uh, and there's a the economist Richard Koo who's at Nomura, he coined this expression balance sheet uh, recession to kind of describe what Japan went through. So basically the idea being that when you have an asset bubble and then a downturn, people have a balance sheet, they're underwater on their balance sheets. So what happens then? So companies go from from maximizing profits being their objective to minimizing debt. So there's a huge kind of bias to run down um, debt levels. uh, So consumption gets hit. And the fear is that this is what we're going to see in in China that we'll see structurally weaker growth over time because obviously China is living with the, um, the I suppose the fallout of of a, of a property market boom and bust and then coupled with the demographic picture in in Japan which is obviously um, sorry in China which is similar to what we've seen in in uh, in Japan. Is this also what we had back in the late nineteen twenties and thirties in the U.S. Yeah, exactly. Extent. I mean, and, yeah. and that was the whole point about Richard Koo when he wrote his book. You know, he, he, I suppose he, he challenged the the kind of consensus um, explanation of of the recession. As I suppose the, the Bernanke kind of Milton Friedman view was a contraction of the money supply, which kind of you know turned an economic downturn into a depression. Uh, so the Richard Koo kind of perspective on it would be, well, that was part of the story, uh, but equally, you know, we you had the, the kind of the assets. Um, deflation and and the balance sheet impact which which is part of it too and obviously we saw this you know in in the global financial crisis as well that you know people had negative equity under houses and they were giving them back and then uh, you know basically walking away 
and 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 then generally left with high debt levels. And and, and what we saw then was a deleveraging. So it's kind of consistent with that. Um, it is something we talked about with Louis Gav uh, a few weeks ago. He was kind of a little bit dismissive of of the the, the parallel between Japan and China. You know, he, his point was, well, the, the 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 real estate bubble in China hasn't been anything of the order that we saw in Japan. You know, famously, people will remember that you know that the um, the the land around the emperor's palace in Tokyo was valued as much as the state of California, and um, so it was like a, a, a bubble of of of, of greater magnitude. Um, so that's definitely a, a fair point. And obviously, you know, uh, Japan, uh, you know, China is a much more managed economy. The, the, the current account, capital account, or the capital account isn't completely open, so they can they can manage things as well, and they seem to be able to, you know, siphon off bad debts into asset management companies and just recapitalize. So you're not you're not having a banking issue in 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 um, China at the moment uh, in in the same way that we saw in Japan. But there was an interesting piece I saw from Paul Krugman then on this topic as well. And his view was, well, yeah, he was saying, well, will China be, go the way of Japan? He was said, no, it might be even worse, was his view, largely because uh, what you've seen, what you've seen in, in China at the moment is actually very high unemployment, youth unemployment. So people aged 15 to 24, um, I think it's like 20% or so, maybe a little bit higher. So that, that obviously creates a big social challenge and a big you know, political challenge for, for the ruling um, uh, Communist Party. So interesting to see how that plays out. And, and his point was, you know, Japan, yes, has dealt with the, the the overhang from the bubble. But actually, you know, if you look at Japanese GDP growth, it has been sluggish. But on a GDP per capita basis, Japan's done actually fine over the last couple of decades. Uh, and it's it's a very cohesive um, society. Um, the question is, will will China be able to, to, to navigate its way through uh, in the same way? So I think it's interesting. I mean, from our perspective, yeah, does it matter for markets or how does it matter? But I think one of the interesting themes is that we are seeing this kind of, you know, solid growth in the U.S. versus you know this weakness in 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 China. Obviously, there's been um, a lot of bullishness around commodities, and it hasn't you know things like copper, and it hasn't kicked in. And and obviously, kind of China has been a marginal buyer there. So so that that's certainly part of that story in relation to commodities. But equally, you know, whereas maybe in the last decade growth everywhere was kind of at the same level. Now we're seeing more meaningful divergences in economic growth uh, across regions, uh, across regions. So, in theory, that should offer opportunities. You you would think for trading and for and and presumably for trend following as well. Maybe orange juice is now the new barometer for economic activity. It's up sixty one percent this year, while copper is completely flat. So, anyways. Let's jump over to trend following for a little bit, and then we'll dive into some of the other topics we have. I mean, trend following, uh, of course, um, was a little bit under attack this week. Some of the trends that we've enjoyed in the past few months, like long equities and long Mexican peso, did suffer a bit from the US downgrade by Fitch or from some of the other things that came out, who knows. But you could argue that this is also part of a normal uh, way markets trend and they do well it's never a straight line and you're gonna get these corrections along the way i think it is way too early to say anything about whether we have seen the end of some of these uh trends however uh, elsewhere in the trend following portfolio of course fixed income markets did enjoy some higher yields and and that's generally good i would imagine for trend followers around the world, although the party was caught a little bit short on Friday, as we already talked about 
Um, so we'll see how that pans out. Other than that, from what I've noticed, energies were okay. Grains uh, and meats did fine, especially meats, actually. Um, then metals and soft were pretty neutral. And uh, I think for the month so far of August, we started off on a little bit of a soft note. My trend barometer closed yesterday at 30. That is weak. And that should support some of the numbers we're seeing in the industry as of Thursday night, down 57 basis points on the B-top 50, down 59 basis points for the year. SOCGEN CT index down about 1% for the month, down about 2% for the year. SOCGEN trend down about one4 for the month, down about 2.8 for the year. Short-term traders index hasn't really capitalized on these wobbles in the market, down a fraction in August, down 3.2% for the year. And of course, uh, there were some losses in the in the equity markets uh, so far this month, down two and a half on the MSCI world, but still up 14 and three quarters for the year. World government bond index, not surprising, down 56 basis points so far this month. And the S&P 500 down to 2.42, but up 16.6% so far. Now, before we leave trend following completely, I wanted to just um, ask your thoughts about the fact that I noticed in the uh, recent um, performance report that has come out for or July, and I took a glance down to kind of the rolling 12 months um, returns for managers with more than $50 million under management. And I noticed that there were some dispersion, to say the least, between the best and the worst, the best up 73% in the last 12 months. That may be an outlier, I think that's fair to say. And the worst down about 40%. Uh, and there were a couple of those, but I think in fairness, it's uh, worth mentioning that I think these are more pure commodity-focused programs. But still, there is a bit of dispersion going on uh, between managers. Um, have you got any thoughts about I mean, I'm sure you would have seen this many, many times during your time at Abbey, but anything you took away from that? No, I mean, obviously it is a big feature of what we see in the managed futures is is high dispersion. And you also tend to see low low persistence in performance in the sense that very often it, you know, not always, but people who are at the top of the league table one year will not be there the next year. Um, which is which is interestingly enough, Alan, not the case this year. It's kind of, yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, the you can't get that yeah. for, yeah. very often you'll see that a manager might be at the top for one, two, three years. <clears throat> and the problem is from an investor's perspective, they'll, you know, somebody could come to the space and say, well, who's the best manager? We'll allocate to this guy. Great three years. You know, the last three years have been fantastic. And then just uh, reversion, um, regression to the mean uh, will end up the next three years. Doesn't mean they've got any better or worse as a manager. So certainly the magnitude of what you're talking is even greater than what I would have seen. I mean, I think you have to obviously adjust for volatility. So from memory, when, when you know, when looking at it previously, studies I've done at about 2021 20, fall, the dispersion used to be about 55 percentage points on average. Um, now, I did look at it recently for the SOCGEN trend constituents, constituents and I calculated at, at 15 vol, it was 26 percentage points, which is, you know, still meaningful, but not, not as high. So, But obviously, that's for large managers that are all kind of similar. So I think once you start looking at the, a broader range of managers with some more commodity-focused, uh, you do tend to see... But I would say, yeah, I, I mean, a dispersion of 40, 50 percentage points wouldn't surprise me at all. I mean, it's obviously much greater. And then it does vary depending on the period. So often you get in a good period, you'll get even more dispersion. So I remember like in 2014, 2015, in that good period for trend, you saw even greater dispersion of where managers um, particularly capitalize on the opportunities. 
So it does vary depending on on the market environment. And and I guess at the moment, you know, it doesn't surprise me to see a bit of dispersion this year. I mean, you've got you've had the bond trade, now you've had the equity trade of late. You've had the currency moves have been quite li- linked to the equity move. But you've had kind of moves in commodities as well, the likes of cocoa, orange juice. So depending on whether you meaningfully allocate to those markets. So if you are a, a much more diversified manager and maybe a smaller manager and you can have more meaningful positions in, in those trends, yeah, you can see how how you could have had uh, that outperformance. So I think it is definitely something that people outside the space will be surprised with, particularly when you see that dispersion on, among managers that people would say are pretty similar. And you know, I would say at the moment it's probably been driven by that those sector allocations. Obviously, speed can be an, a, an important factor too. But yeah, I would, I would, I would guess it's the sector allocations that's the main driver. I think that's, uh, I think that's very, very fair. And I, I, one thing I wanted to mention, uh, I'm going to do it on a no names basis, but I think it will help people understand um, how these dispersions uh, can appear. So, for example, last year there was uh, a couple of managers that did really well. One of them you know, up close to 100%, 80 90%, whatever. But when you look at the breakdown, uh, from what I understand, three markets in that portfolio made more than 100%. <laughs> so, so it's clearly if you get your sizing absolutely spot on and you see a massive trend occurring, you know, even just a few markets can make a, a big difference. While other managers who maybe not had done as well, but close to, would have had a much more, I wouldn't say even in distributed uh, attributions, but certainly not with three outliers like that. So it just goes to show that even though we are all trend followers and we all do, uh, we all do things a little bit different is what I meant to say, but they can show up as big differences year to year uh, without a doubt. Now, another thing, we're going to kind of leave the trend following, pure trend following uh, aside now and jump into some of the articles and topics that you had found in particular uh, interesting. And and actually, this is something I I didn't think of, but I, I think you're absolutely right because we're talking about asset allocation. We're talking about, uh, you know, why you should include managed futures or trend following in, in your portfolio. And then the first sub point you listed was, no more talk of end of 60-40 portfolio. And it's kind of right. I haven't really seen many articles about that recently. So I'm intrigued. Well, that's just it. I mean, I, I went, I, 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 it's just been a remarkable change. I mean, every every second article you read on asset allocation last year was about the end of the 60-40 portfolio. You know, I just had a list there, Lombard, ODA, BlackRock, Goldman Sachs, KKR, Barron's. They all had this kind of, is the 60-40 dead? enhancing the traditional portfolio. And now into this year, absolutely zero talk about the end of 6040. Unsurprisingly, uh, that it has come on the back of pretty good performance for for the 6040 portfolio over the last uh, three quarters. So obviously kind of equities bottomed in, in kind of October of last year and have been rallying since. And bonds have been doing okay. I mean, in total returns uh, terms, certainly positive. So, you, you know, is... Whereas last year, I guess, there was this very compelling case around diversification, you know. And, you know, pe- people, I think, uh, tend to look at what's happening in the world and say, oh, yeah, I see, look, there's a war going on in Ukraine and the Feds, we've got higher inflation and all of this risk and and, and these strategies seem to be doing well. So so it seems to be a fairly good case. 
Whereas you're into this year now, and it just strikes me that, and speaking to investors as well, probably a little bit more pushback on that idea. That so people will say, well, you know, fixed income looks interesting now. You know, you can bonds are are are, are interesting. And then you know, we, some people make the view, well, last year was a one-off. Like you, you came into your unusually low yields in bonds, and at low yields, your your duration risk is higher. We had an, you know, we've seen you know seventy-five basis point hikes from the Fed. ECB, nobody expected that. People say, well, that was, will that be repeated? So there were certain factors there that you could say to, okay, it was an extreme year and now you're into an environment of higher yields. So is there still that case? Um, so I, I, you know, I think, that, I think it's a different case now. If you go back to 2019, 2020, um, when re yields were so low, it was easy to point out to people, okay, that's a risk in your portfolio, having that amount of fixed income. Uh, you know, obviously from from the duration perspective. So what I wanted to do was to to take a look and say, well, okay, from a pure asset allocation perspective, you know, what what are reasonable um, kind of return expectations for the different asset classes? And then, given that backdrop, what 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 would be the case for for allocating to, to trend following? So so I suppose if you think about it, t- take equities first. You know, so what's a reasonable uh, return expectation? Well, one thing to do would be to take the um, well, obviously, the price-earnings ratio. Um, and if you were taking a longer-term perspective, you might take something like Robert Schiller's cyclically adjusted uh, price earnings, um, so the CAPE. So that's at about uh, 30.8 at the moment. So still very high, according to history. Not not as high as it have been. So to, to get a return expectations, you, you take the inverse of that to get the earnings yield, and that's the real yield, and then add on your expectation from inflation, which you can get basically from, from kind of break-evens, so that's at, at about two and a half percent, which makes sense. You know, the Fed's target is two, but everybody kind of is of the view that it's going to be tough to get back to two. So we'll probably be in an environment of two and a half percent. So that gives you kind of a nominal equity return expectation of five point seven percent. Fair enough. So then you look at bonds and you say, well, what's the expectation there? Well, obviously, ten-year yields are about four point one, four point two. When I did it during the week, they were up to four point two. They're back to four point one. And actually, there's a very good fit if you look at the starting yield for bonds versus the total return you realize, you know, which is what you expect. It pretty pretty map, maps pretty well. So I think 4.2% would be a reasonable, that's a nominal expectation uh, on bonds. So then you get, well, what's a reasonable expectation, say, for, for, for trend following? Um, you know, uh, most of the people we spoke to, I would say, you know, on the, the CTA series said, well, they expected sharp should be somewhere about 0.5, 0.6, something like that. Now, actually, if you look at a stock gen trend since 2000, the sharp has only been 0.31, so it doesn't sound very great. But actually, if you think about that in the context of where we are at the moment with, with rates, you know, you know, it, interest rates are about 4%. Um, sorry, they're, they're more than that. Uh, they're 5.5%, but but the 10-year yields are, are 4%, 4.1. So that's telling you, okay, there's a bit of term premium in there too, but they're saying on average, rates are going to be about 4% over the next 10 years. So I took, took a little bit off for, for the term premium and I said, okay, let's assume that rates are 3.8%. So you, you're going to earn, as a managed futures manager, you will earn that on your cash, but maybe not on the full amount. So assume and say you're earning that on 80%, combined with a 0.3 sharp, still gives you an expectation of about, what is it, 7.3% for, for trend following. So looks very reasonable. And then if you put that into an optimizer to say, well, okay, of those three assets, bonds, equities, trend, and okay, let's say we're, we're going to, the objective is to, to maximize the sharp, you could quibble with that or not. 
comes out with an allocation of 61% of trend, 28% equities, 11% of bonds. So, <laughs> okay, sounds like, why does nobody else allocate to this? So you might say, well, okay, what's wrong with this? Well, maybe we were too pessimistic on equities. Cape of, of, of 30.8, people might say, well, that's backward looking and, and maybe that's, that's too pessimistic. So maybe go to the current PE, which is about 20. So that would give you a real earnings yield of 5% and add inflation to that. So your equities is up to 7.5%. So that does change your asset allocation. And so suddenly your asset allocation is now up to 38% equities, uh, 13% bonds. But trend following is still up at 49%, 50% of, 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 the, of, the, um, of the allocation. So you might say, well, okay, I'm skeptical on trend following. Um, let's knock in half the expected sharp. Down to, so I've knocked it down to 0 0.15. Reran the numbers, still with the adjusters, uh, with the CAPE at, or with PE at 20. So then you're getting up to kind of 40, what was it, 46% equities, 27% bonds, and 27% trend. So that's what, even if trend following is only half as good as it's been for the last 23 years, you still should be allocating about a quarter of your three-asset portfolio. So I said, well, okay, say if you just think trend following will be marginally good, a 0 0.05 sharp, it came out with equities 54, bonds 40, and trend 8, which is actually probably what you would, you know, people say, start off with a 60-40 portfolio and add a little bit to trend, 5 to 10%. So it's almost like investors are so skeptical on, on, on the benefit of, of trend following that they're actually marking down the expected performance by about, you know, What's that? But by about 80, 85 percent, you know. So, and even with that, there's still a case for for having it in your portfolio because the positive returns, the the, the negative correlation, uh, and and obviously, particularly in the current environment, returns are, are look a lot better because you've got that boost from 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 cash rates. No, absolutely. I mean, uh, obviously, I love these uh, points, and uh, I think I think that the, the the point you make about even if you're incredibly conservative. And pick numbers or returns for trend following that we haven't really seen, but we're just saying we're just artificially keeping them low. You still have a meaningful allocation, and it's probably still higher than what most institutions have uh, allocated at this stage. It reminds me of, of a couple of things uh, that I've done on my side, just to kind of vi try to visualize for people this. Well, first of all, people should just uh, note that yeah, you can get five percent on bonds right now, but actually. The ten-year return on the MSCI, uh, sorry, on the FTSE government world government bond index for the last ten years is zero. You didn't get a return for ten years. We've seen that, of course, in equities as well. From two thousand to two thousand twelve, no return on most equities. Even some equity markets in, I think, Southern Europe might still be below their two thousand peak, although they may be close now to to um, getting to that. And so that prompted me two things, kind of similar studies to uh, what you mentioned. I did a study saying, well, people often ask me about timing. Well, they ask me about two things. How much should I allocate? So you obviously come up with some ideas. And then the timing issue, right? And so I thought, well, why don't you combine those two and say, let's just try and optimize based on sharp between stocks, bonds, and, 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 and trend following using extreme starting points. So I did before and after 
the great finance, uh, sorry, the tech bubble, because I think those are extreme starting points. Certainly when you put it into an asset allocation, your bond and equity portfolio uh, allocation will, will change dramatically, but also before and after the great financial crisis. Of course, I used our own, uh, so Don's data, so I don't, I didn't do it on the uh, search and CTA index. It's probably not markably different. But in any event, the most consistent allocation between starting before and after a crisis in those, with those two um, uh, crises that I mentioned is trend following. You know, it's really between bonds and equities you see the massive shifts. And I think actually right now you shouldn't have had any bonds in your portfolio or very little bonds in your portfolio since uh, the uh, March of 2009, uh, the end of the great financial crisis. So that's one thing. The other thing I you know, that I like to visualize from time to time too for people who may not be familiar with it, because I think you're right in saying that a lot of people are incredibly skeptical and feel very uncertain about uh, a larger allocation to trend following, thinking that it's a very unpredictable, um, not stable uh, type return stream. But actually, when you look at rolling 10-year, uh, well, let's look at rolling returns, one year, three year, five year, 10 year, what you find is that with the exception of one year, there's a higher percentage of positive rolling one-year returns when you look at the MSCI World Index and the FTSE uh, World Government Bond Index. They do have a higher one-year percentage of winning periods. But as soon as you get to three years and five years, it's pretty even, although I think trend following starts to do better. And when you get to 10 years, at least again using uh, our data, We've never had a negative 10-year uh, return, whilst even bonds have had negative 10-year return periods, one of them being very recently, and stocks have also had negative 10-year return. So I think it's a matter of educating, as you rightly say, giving people something to um, to, to look at. Yeah. I mean, I think the key thing at the moment is, is just that, is that equity valuation, you know, because, yeah, obviously you could say bond yields over the last 10, bonds over the last 10 years, obviously... Yeah, close to zero in some cases. Why? Well, obviously because the starting yield was close to zero. So that's why that's that's not unexpected. But the the challenge at the moment, obviously, is that you know, and and, and equity valuations, you can debate that how high they are. But I, I suppose the key thing is that they are high relative to cash rates. And obviously, managed features and trend following is it's essentially a cash plus strategy because you earn the cash and you have the trading profits as well. So I think in at the moment, that's the key point is that. It looks particularly compelling now uh, in light of where equities are and where rates are. So obviously, if we were in an environment where PEs were at 10 and interest rates were at zero, then, you you know, if you ran the optimization, you'd get a much higher allocation of equities because your future equity expectations would be much higher. But we're not at that point now. So, uh, so yeah, I, I mean, I, I think you're right. I think a lot of people... And when I talk to investors and, and people I work with, they, they, they'll say, oh, you know, well, here's my macro view. How does that translate into into my allocation in alternatives? And that can be a difficult one because you're always kind of trying to time what's going to happen over the next year. Whereas if you take a step back and just look at the valuations, you say, and the, the characteristics of the strategy, you can say, well, here's a very compelling case for for, for this in, in the context of kind of what you might call your, your capital markets assumptions at the moment. It's a good point. And the other thing about, you know, the uh, the term return stacking has obviously had a lot of um, um, attention uh, since uh, uh, Corey and Rodrigo and and, and those uh, great guys um, uh, over at Resolve uh, and Newfound have 
kind of made it popular again, reminded people that these things. But I think sometimes we forget, well, they, of course, are the first ones to admit that this is not new, you know, this has been in existence for a long time. But I like the way they talk about it. But I think people forget, as you rightly point out, when it comes to bonds plus trend following, that's actually what you get more or less just buying a fund of a trend follower, because as you say, 80% of the money is probably placed in bonds or fixed income instruments to keep the cash safe. And then on top of that, you have the trend following return. So you don't really need to do anything other than just buy a well-run trend following fund and you get those two benefits. Okay, let's um, move along because you brought another uh, very different topic along. Um, something about Minsky moments, which we haven't... We haven't had that many of recently, but they do occur, and and maybe they'll occur soon again. Who knows? Yeah, exactly. It was just, uh, this is an interesting piece I saw from um, GMO and James Montier at GMO, who's quite a reasonable, well-known um, strategist, market commentator. And um, it's an interesting piece. I mean, Minsky Moments, obviously, Minsky Moments, it's named after the economist Hyman Minsky, he had this framework of thinking about, you know, periods of, of stability sow the seeds for instability, basically. And in periods of stability, people tend to take on more risk and more debt. And eventually you get to a tipping point, a Minsky moment where sentiment changes and then people move into kind of, yeah, kind of the deleveraging, like we were talking about earlier, and, and that that um, excessive leverage in the system is the cause of, of the crisis. So essentially... You know, Minsky's work had kind of been out in the wilderness for a long time, but came back into focus during the financial crisis, because that was a very clear example of a, of a Minsky moment. You know, the fact that we'd had, you know, that what economists called the great moderation, you know, stable growth, low inflation, stable interest rates. That was fantastic. But what did it do? It encouraged people to take on more debt uh, and, and, and that credit growth and debt growth ultimately um, so w w was the source of the, of, of, the, of the financial crisis. So what this piece from James Montier is about is, is kind of slow-burning Minsky moments. Uh, and his point is that there are signs of p potential stress in the system when you look at debt levels, but it's, it's, it's evolving slowly. So that's why it's kind of a, a risk out there in the markets, but not currently evolving into a crisis. And he looks at debt levels across various economies, and he he, he refers to a, a, another economist who kind of has a threshold of 150% of GDP as being a kind of a, a level for, for uh, and this is across kind of um, total debt, so so not just government debt, but looking at corporate debt, household debt, etc., and also looking at the growth rate of 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 debt. Um, so basically, his conclusion is yes, there are high debt levels, but the growth rate across a lot of the economies isn't above the threshold at the moment. So it's kind of saying, well, there's not sign of an imminent Minsky moment uh, yet, but uh, but certainly from a kind of a structural balance sheet perspective, the high levels of debt are, are concerning. The interesting thing about the paper was was kind of how to structure your portfolio in light of this. And I suppose the surprising thing was, it, I mean, there was no mention of trend following or managed futures, uh, oddly enough, but it was all about the kind of strategies that you should uh, use to kind of prepare for the worst. Uh, and and they were cash. So I guess you know, as we've been talking about, managers and trend following being a cash plus strategy. So, so so that's it. Obviously, he talks about you know the, the pros and cons of of options, volatility trading, and the bleed from that strategy. And obviously, um, that 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 is uh, 
you know, the returns to a long vol, vol strategy, you'll get periodic bumps up, but it's, it's, it's a long bleed over time. And then more from an equity perspective, you know, strategies with, with a ne- negative correlation to that tail event. So basically w- one strategy he had looked at historically is long uh, quality stops versus junk stops. So, so um, you know, I guess quality being companies with, with strong balance sheets, etc. And that historically has done well. But at the moment, um, the valuations for quality stocks are very high because I guess a lot of the, the high tech stocks would, would fall into that category. So the other strategy that he recommends is basically um, comes back to the old classic uh, value versus growth as, as another way of protecting the portfolio. Uh, and that tends to do well in periods of significant downturns um, for, 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 for equity markets. But but yeah, what was interesting was was the absence of any talk of trend following, which would because all of the arguments he makes around why this is uh, why you need some kind of um, portfolio diversifier or why you need some protection strategy all apply and but but they're all good justifications for why you would hold uh, trend following in, in in a portfolio. His way of of uh, addressing it in portfolios is these kind of um, uh, equity tilts, obviously you know value versus growth and 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 that sounds reasonable. And I know people who've you know used kind of quality as 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 that kind of a strategy in their portfolios. But yeah, I I think a, a good article if you want to make the case for 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 trend following and managers, even if it's not mentioned. Yeah, no, absolutely. And the article is called "Slow Burn Minsky Moments and What to Do About Them." And I completely agree. When I read the, uh, for example, in the executive summary, it talks about you know having uh, strategies that has a negative correlation or can have a negative correlation to the event itself, but also uh, you know is a great store of value and you know, long-term makes money. And I'm thinking, yeah, that's, you know, tick, tick, tick. That's what we do. And there's no mention of that. And it just goes to show, I think, that people are probably not uh, as familiar with, uh, uh, you know, this this option, uh, so to speak, uh, as we would like them to be, uh, despite our efforts every week to uh, educate people. All right, let's uh, jump again to uh, another topic. I mean, one thing I will, I, you could say that you can take away from the article and it just follows that quote and I can't I can't remember who, who came uh, up with it. I think actually it's one of the, I think could have been FDR uh, during the Second World War, before Second World War, something about we can't predict but we can prepare. And I think that's exactly what investors forget to do most of the time by including some of these uh, strategies um, before uh, the event, and then they jump into them after the event because suddenly they realize that they've been swimming naked, as Warren Buffett would say. Well, there, there, on that point, there is another classic uh, quote that that that, that, you, that that he mentions, and it's it's that crises take take a much longer in coming than you think, and then when they happen, they happen faster than you you know than than you expect, and and that's really. I suppose that's that's kind of um, the whole philosophy on this is that okay, there's risks and people are calling. Oh, this is a problem. Look at the high debt levels, and people just get comfortable, and then eventually, at some point, you get a change in sentiment and things unravel very quickly. And and that's that's the kind of the philosophy of 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 the piece. And you know exactly, but but it's also kind of a challenge for them, right? Because Jeremy Grantham at GMO, of course, has been out warning about these things for quite a while, and. Uh, and 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 not only him, but many other people, and 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 I think that shows the difference between what we do unemotionally and without any prediction, and what other people do. They may be right at some point, but it's just that it can be very costly to be wrong. And 
and not to bang on too much about this, but I remember in the beginning of the year when trend followers began to go long equities, people were thinking or saying, ah, that doesn't strike me as a very good idea. This is not going to be a year of great equity returns following what we saw last year. And look where we are right now. I mean, equities have done pretty well, actually, so far. Anyways, um, speaking of equities, I have a feeling maybe we're going to get to that. Uh, you had a conversation with Christopher Zook, uh, or Zook uh, recently, and uh, very, very interesting. From memory, um, th there was also something about taking stakes in general partners uh, in hedge funds. So, uh, yeah, so tell me more. Yeah, no, it's very... Uh, Christopher Zook is... Uh, Zook is um He's a founder and CIO of Kaz uh, Investments in in Texas. His firm looks for thematic ideas for to say, okay, this is the place to invest for the next number of years. They do like actually GP stakes in in asset managers, so, so they think that's a very solid uh, business. And uh, actually, they're very focused on uh, sports uh, franchises at the moment. But what was interesting about that conversation, and it does relate to the slow burning Minsky moments uh, uh, discussion as well, is that couple of things one you know despite the fact that they're kind of longer term investors um and, and quite focused on equity and equity type investing he does see the risk reward in public equities as being particularly poor at the moment so he has a kind of framework of of of, of rating the opportunity set from one to five and five being very attractive three neutral and one being very unattractive and his view is it's a one at the moment and largely due to what we've been talking about because Valuations are high relative to cash rates, so the, you know, the, the the prospective return on offer is is you know in terms of the equity risk premium is low relative to to the risk. So that was one interesting point I thought. But a second factor that that he he, he touched on quite a bit was kind of um, the 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 kind of coming wave of refinancing that that we'll see, particularly in in commercial real estate. Uh, but also, you know, there's adjustable rate mortgages and also more generally uh, for, for, for corporates around the world. So if you think about it, you know, we have had this ultra low rate environment, you know, between 2016 to 2019. And what that did was it gave people the opportunity to to borrow at exceptionally low rates uh, or refinance. And uh, some, some of that is on long term rates. But but in his what he was pointing to, that in many cases that these rates have to be reset or refinanced after five years. So to the extent that a lot of that borrowing was done 2019, 2020, that time frame that we're as we move into next year, we're going to see a lot more pressure in terms of refinancing. And in some of those cases, particularly with respect to commercial real estate, the values have come down. So if you bought something for $100, say, or 100 million, whatever, uh, and you put up kind of, say, 60 million and borrowed or fifty million, you borrow the rest. Now, the, 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 because the, the the property value has come down 25 percent, you're going to have to go and find that cash to to, to because the, the the bank or or, or the lenders won't um, won't give you as much. And obviously, you'll be refinancing at at a higher rate as well. So, this is the kind of the idea of the slow burning Minsky moment. We know that there are risks out there from higher rates. You know, people locked in very attractive rates, but they will have to be refinanced at some point. And it seems that kind of later this year, moving into next year, I looked at some data um, for US corporate maturities. You know, there's 500 billion this year, 860 billion in 2025, 880 billion in 2026. And again, S&P and Fitch were making the same point about like a lot of companies will tend to kind of refinance maybe 18 months ahead of the actual 
maturity of, of those loans. So certainly, yes, we haven't seen the reaction to higher rates yet, but that's not to say that we're not going to see it. And one reason to expect that we will see it over time is this refinancing wave coming. You know, you see it in the mortgage market in the UK as well. A lot of people on kind of fixed rate mortgages, maybe one to two years, that's fine. They can live at higher rates for the moment. But then as soon as you have to reset, you know, I was watching the Channel 4 News the other night and there was a guy who was facing repossession because his mortgage has gone from, I think it was 1% to 5.5% or, or his monthly mortgages like a t- went from £1,000 to £4,000 uh, overnight. So it's that kind of shift, that, that, that that's the type of idea that, that that's behind the Minsky moment. So I thought that was very interesting in that conversation around uh, this kind of refinancing risk that we'll see in markets in the coming one to two years. I've never quite understood why not more countries adopt the way the Danish mortgage-backed securities market function. Um, Because this really is a market that not only is one of the oldest, I think, in the world, but also for its size of the country is is quite uh, significant. And it used to be pretty liquid, I imagine. I don't know about now because a lot of bond markets aren't that liquid anymore, thanks to the central banks. But um, it's just the way it functions and just the way it allows people to lock in these 30-year rates at obviously a couple of years ago you could lock in 30-year fixed rates at you know one percent or even lower Um, and it just allows not only people to have certainty about the future it also allows uh, the young people the first-time buyers uh, to get a chance to uh, to get into uh, these markets Uh, and of course you can still choose a variable mortgage if you believe there's going to be a period of falling interest rates but you can even convert these, if 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 rates go uh, lower and and the bonds that you've essentially borrowed goes above a hundred, you can always buy them back at a hundred. So you have no unlimited risk in that uh, either. And of course, if yields go up as they have done, bond prices come down, and you can buy them back at a lower rate and cut some of your uh, debt uh, out. It's just a, anyways. Um, going on a tantrum here. Anyways, let's finish off with something completely different, um, but just uh, something that uh, a little article that caught my eye. There's never a lack of controversial comments when you uh, when you read an article about Charlie Munger. Um, and he uh, is quoted of saying, Charlie Munger asked, do you want to be more like me or more like them? Why he believes diversification is an impossible and agonizing task any idiot can do. And Munger's core argument against diversification lies in the potential trade-off between safety and returns. While diversifying across multiple assets may help mitigate risk and protect against significant losses, it may also limit the upside potential for higher returns. Munger believes that investors who spread their capital thinly across numerous stocks may not fully capitalize on the exceptional growth of a selected few or select few. And of course, you and I had a conversation with Jerry uh, very recently um, that kind of touches upon that because he's going all in on diversifying on single stocks while most managers in our industry just trade a handful or two of uh, stock indices. Um, And also it ties into the discussion we've had on the podcast many times about how many markets should you trade? And if you go for um, hundreds of markets, should it be developed markets? Should it be alternative markets? Now, just to set the stage, I'd love to hear your thoughts before we, we wrap up completely. But when I look at historical numbers, and you just go into one of these uh, online databases where you can find CTA numbers, some of the managers, and okay, maybe they're not completely vol-adjusted, all of these numbers, 
But some of the managers who've had the best returns for decades, frankly, are the ones who don't are the ones who do not trade the most amount of markets. Um, so maybe old Munger is right after all. I don't know. What do you think? Well, it's interesting. I mean, I've seen Charlie Munger and Buffett not having very favorable things to say about managed futures before. So that you know, they don't oh, know everything, okay. I suppose I would say. That is true. Um and I think the point Charlie Munger also makes as well in that piece is, you know, he says if you have loads of stocks where you can't keep track of them all, you know, the, you, you don't have enough capacity to monitor the earnings, etc. So I guess the difference, obviously, with respect to trend following is is obviously that a managed futures is your insight is that markets trend and you, you don't claim to know about what's going to drive corn or wheat or soybeans or copper or whatever at any point in time. But it's the belief that markets will trend. So, I mean, uh, you know, I, I think it, maybe the criticism doesn't apply to when you're applying a systematic strategy where you're not claiming to know everything about th that market all the time. I do agree with you. Like, I, I mean, what, maybe what we didn't focus enough on in the series was it, it's not just about the ma number of markets you trade, but how much do you meaningfully allocate to those markets? You know, it's, uh, I think that can be one of the reasons why you can see sometimes see managers trading 30 or 40 markets, but if you if you have a meaningful position in orange juice or cocoa or lean hogs or whatever it is, then that's going to give you a differentiated profile relative to managers who might trade it, but at a very small level. You know, I mean, this is sort of my observation over the past three plus decades of this in, of being in this industry, and that is that, yes, we, we talk a lot about diversification. We kind of try to do it in on many different levels, but when we really enjoy the best returns is when there is some, you know, high degree of conviction in the portfolio. And that can be expressed in a few ways. Of course, nobody would have silly risk in one market, sure. But when we have conviction in, say, short bonds or long equities, et cetera, et cetera, that's where we make a, a meaningful difference. What's interesting about that conversation, and again, maybe we need to thrash it out a little bit uh, when we get a chance, um, and that is... I think people who, uh, and this is my interpretation, of course, they may have a different point of view, but but managers who to choose to trade hundreds of markets. So one argument is to say, well, if I trade all these markets, there are more chances that I can find an outlier. That is true, but you're trading it with such a small position that that outlier is not going to make a huge difference. It'll make a difference, but it's not going to make a huge difference. And you also have more markets in your portfolio that can be in a range or consolidating, and therefore they can actually penalize you. We need to think about that as well. But the argument is that, well, if you, I guess what you could say is we, we all, be, I think most trend followers believe that all markets have the same ability to trend. And that means that over time, they should deliver the same expected return. Now, this is a general statement, but I actually think a lot of people have that view from their research. So that means that the main benefit you get by trading a lot of markets, I imagine, is that you can smooth your return profile. You could probably limit maybe your drawdowns, potentially, but you can certainly smooth your return profile. Now, that is going to show up in your shop. And the funny part is that a lot of the people who say that that they like trading more markets, et cetera, et cetera, they also say that actually the shop is not something they worry about too much. And anyway, we're going to have a bad shop. So it is kind of interesting. You can certainly see it from many different angles. Let me put it that way. 
Yeah, I mean, it's. Um, I mean, obviously, the, the the point of it, yeah, trading lots of markets. In theory, you pick up on more different risk factors, you know, and and uh, which which makes sense. Um, obviously, you have to allocate meaningfully to to them. Um, but yeah, I think it, you know. But you it sounds like both. this debate's going to rumble on. <laughs> no, I know, and you can't do both, Alan. That's the point, I guess. You can't trade hundreds of markets and also allocate "quote unquote" meaningfully because you have to cut or, or limit your overall exposure. Yeah. I guess I if, you, if you're only trading ten markets, you could might you know maybe at the moment you'd be only be picking up on like a, a reflation trade, like short bonds, long equities, is and short dollar. Is it all in one trade, or are you picking up on lots of different things? Whereas, obviously, if you're trading, you know, European gas, if you're trading emerging market currencies, you can be picking up on, you know, obviously you, you talked about Mexican peso that's benefiting probably from the the nearshoring uh, trend. Um, so, so you know, so that is a different factor to maybe the global growth factor. So, it's, so you can see intuitively why. That's 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 the logic for it. Um, it is also touching a little bit into this point about that you know some managers will say hundreds of markets, e- even better yeah, alternative markets. Some managers will say you know you know fifty sixty markets will do fine, and then we have the replicators who say well you can replicate the whole thing using three you know two handfuls of markets whatever. So I, I understand why people might be confused about this point. We're going to leave them a little bit confused because we have to wrap up uh, our conversation. And, uh, but if you enjoy them, why not leave a rating and review? Because it is something that really does help uh, the podcast to be noticed by more people. Uh, of course, you should do that on your favorite podcast player in any event. Questions for us uh, should be sent to info at toptradersonplot.com. And uh, next week, I'm joined by Mark. So make sure you do send in some questions for him. Uh, these are always fun and insightful conversations, um, and we'll do our best to answer them as well. By the way, I used to talk, I don't know if you know the answer to this, Alan, I used to talk about people, um, you know, things we pick up on Twitter, but Twitter has changed its name, so I don't know what to call it. Is it a tweet? It's not a tweet anymore. It's a, it's an, Is it an X? And I'm not sure. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Anyway, maybe someone can help me out here. All right. From Alan and me, thanks so much for listening. We look forward to being back with you next week. And in the meantime, Take care of yourself and take care of each other. Thanks for listening to the Systematic Investor Podcast Series. If you enjoy this series, go on over to iTunes and leave an honest rating and review. And be sure to listen to all the other episodes from Top Traders Unplugged. If you have questions about systematic investing, send us an email with the word question in the subject line to info at toptradersunplugged.com and we'll try to get it on the show. And remember, all the discussion that we have about investment performance is about the past, and past performance does not guarantee or even infer anything about future performance. Also understand that there's a significant risk of financial loss with all investment strategies, and you need to request and understand the specific risks from the investment manager about their products before you make investment decisions. Thanks for spending some of your valuable time with us, and we'll see you on the next episode of The Systematic Investor.